following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. It being a holiday weekend and us knowing the realities of holiday weekends, we sometimes do fun things on these weekends and just take things a little bit lighter and simpler. I'm not sure how much lighter and simpler this will actually be, but um, we are going to do what we started last time jokingly to call Stump the Pastor. Um, I'm going to need this, aren't I? (laughs) Now, I don't know if you'll actually stump me. It's not probably very difficult to do that, but really what this is supposed to be is a time for you to um, raise whatever questions might be bugging you. And I can't promise that I'll give you an answer um, that satisfies you or helps you um, completely overcome that. But I can promise to respond to you. <laughs> so I don't call it q and I call it Q&R, <laughs> question and response. Set the bar real low. Yeah. So what we'll do is we have a, this microphone and we'll just kind of like pass it through. And any question on your mind... Um, you can ask, and I will do my very best. And I, what I will promise is if, that I, if I am truly stumped and have no idea, I will, I will research it because it's a chance for me to learn, and then I'll, I'll talk to you during the week or something, okay? So who would like to go first? Who has a question? <gasps> a child question! These are the hardest ones! <laughs> would you run that back? Thank you. <laughs> How... How much different is Jesus than God? (laughs) How much different is Jesus than God? I love that question. (laughs) I think you should ask your mom and dad on the way home. (laughs) Yeah. I believe the hardest question from the last stump the pastor was also from a child uh, whose parents were like, your turn. (laughs) Uh, That's a great question. Uh, question, Clara, thank you for asking it. Um, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the very representation of God that, God, that Jesus is the exact replica of God's very nature. That's some fancy words from Hebrews chapter 1. And this is a really, really important thing for us to know, that Jesus, when he was a, a, a person that that we, we weren't alive then, but there were other people who were alive when Jesus was on earth. And they could see him and hear his voice and hug him and eat food with him. And he was a very real person who was right there with him. And we don't have the great joy of experiencing Jesus that way, but Jesus is still alive and we can know God through Jesus as well. But um, what the Bible tells us is that Jesus is the very best way for us to know God. And so I actually tell people sometimes that when they're reading hard stuff in the Bible and they don't understand and they say, oh, this, this verse or this passage is really hard. It doesn't seem like God is very loving in this verse. I always tell them to remember Jesus because Jesus, even more than anything else you read in the Bible, is the perfect way for us to understand who God is because Jesus is God. And um, there's lots of places in the Bible we could point to. Some of my favorite ones are John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. So if you want some reading homework, (laughs) uh, you could read those uh, chapters of the Bible and learn a lot more about how Jesus reveals who God is to us. (sighs) Does that help at all? Is Is that an okay answer?
If you would like to talk some more about that, I would be happy to talk with you more. I'm going to move on for now because there are other people who have questions. <laughs> yes, Sarah. Can you bring the mic to Sarah, please, real quick? I've always wondered about this. I've always wondered, she says. I've always wondered about the fig tree. The fig tree. So in Matthew and in Mark, there's the parable or the, the miracle of Jesus cursing the fig tree. Mm. Matthew has Jesus cursing the fig tree and it dies on the spot. And Mark has him cursing the fig tree and everyone hears him and then they just like leave it at that. Why? Say the last part again. They just, they just leave it at that. Like, it curses it and doesn't describe what happens. Yeah, like he's like, no fruit shall ever come for you again. Or no one will eat from you again. Yeah. And then like ends, but then the Matthew one has like the truly I tell you, dot, dot, dot. Hmm. And so like why, why would one author leave out that part? Mm-hmm. Or I don't know. I think it's really funny that Jesus got mad enough at a fig tree <laughs> to be like, Bleh. Stupid fig tree. Stupid fig tree, yeah. Um, yes, that's a great question. I'm going to leave aside the question of the meaning of the cursing of the fig tree for now. Uh, but I will love to address the question of why the two uh, books of the Bible describe it in different ways. So um, if you don't know, our, our New Testament, our Christian scriptures, begin with four books of the Bible that we call Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these are four books that tell the story of Jesus' birth and life and ministry and death and resurrection and ascension. And they're all told in different ways. And sometimes the details don't quite line up. And you would, you would think, boy, if, uh, if somebody was making up a religion <laughs> uh, and wanted to convince everybody that it was true, they would certainly not put together all these different books and that, that say things in different ways. Um, because it would be like... Uh, easy to disprove, perhaps, or to dismiss. But that's actually not the way that people in that era received information and truth and history anyway. So the reason we have different Gospels is because they're written for different audiences with different intentions in mind. They all want to have the same intention, broadly speaking, which is to tell the good news of, uh, of Jesus. Um, but one was written for a more Jewish audience uh, than some of the others, and that kind of thing. And uh, you can certainly tell that Matthew and Luke borrow pretty liberally from Mark's gospel, but the gospel of John is an entirely different sort of thing. And, and do you know how many parables, for example, are contained in the gospel of John? Zero, right? Um, very interesting stuff. And uh, so I love that the Bible is a multivocal thing. I always say it's not a book, it's a library. That's right. Good. Some people listen. I love it. Um, <clears throat> And so it's not just true of the Gospels, it's true of the whole Bible. And you see some of this, uh, something even more dramatic in the Old Testament where, you know, you have the, the stories of Israel told in Chronicles and the stories of Israel told in the Kings, and they're, they're different. And they have different conceptions of who God is, right? And um, so that raises the question of contradictions, which I know is not really exactly what you're asking, but I know that it's probably one or two questions away. And uh, I heard one person say it like this. I think it was Pete Enns who said, um, it's not a contradiction if I say when I'm 10 years old, I hate oatmeal. And when I'm 20 years old, I say, I love oatmeal. That's just a change in my perspective, right? Now, if I say uh, in one conversation that I hate oatmeal and then I love oatmeal, that is a contradiction. But when you have one text that says that sees God this way and then later a text that sees God slightly differently, um, that's not a contradiction. It's, a, it, it's probably an evolution of thought about God. And that's why the concept that I just, the question I just answered uh, from Clara is so important because Jesus is the very representation of who God is, the exact replica of God's nature. 
Uh, he is the image of the invisible God, is what it says in Colossians. And um, so when you have questions about those evolutions of thought that we see in the Old Testament, or even in the New Testament, probably to a lesser degree, it's a more compressed timeline, um, <clears throat> the, the way to solve those is to read everything through the lens of who Jesus is. So um, I probably answered 15 questions, and none of them were the one you actually asked, but that's what I'll have to do for now. <laughs> Ruby, did you have a question as well? We love God, yes. More of a statement than a question, and I love that very much. Thank you. Uh, I think Vera has a question. Okay, so I have a question about Greek. It's how to pronounce a certain word. Okay. That's why I'm walking up. A question about Greek and how to pronounce it. pronounce this. <laughs> uh, tzatziki, I think. That's a sauce. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. It's uh, not, was, not Koine Greek. We not made that Greek. at Sojourner House, and it was delicious, and we had fun, and usually we learn from each other at Sojourner, but nobody knew how to pronounce it. <laughs> nobody knew how to pronounce it. <laughs> so I I I thank you so much. Any Greek people in the room? Is it Tzatziki? You know, you could go down to, the, to, down to East Ave and ask them at the Greek festival. They would be happy to tell you. <laughs> I love that. Yes, the New Testament was written in Greek, but I think it predates Tzatziki. Or at least it wasn't mentioned, as far as I know. <laughs> I thought you were going to like show me the Greek letters and everything. I was getting very nervous. <laughs> Other questions? I've only been stumped twice so far, I guess. So. Joel has one. He's smiling. This is going to be... Um, <laughs> Joel went to is, seminary, so... Well. <laughs> So if Jesus is God and Jesus is like the best example we have of like the embodiment of love, how do you, rec- how do you reconcile Jesus as love, God as love with the whole concept of uh, eternal damnation and the lakes of fire if you don't follow and obey my understanding of what, I don't know, life is and love is and all that stuff? It's not the question I gave you, Joel. No, it's... Uh... I'm just kidding. I didn't give anybody any questions. Uh, we had a similar question the last time, and um, the, the, tr- the most honest answer I can give about afterlife issues is that I don't know. And I, I said that last time, and I think maybe freaked some people out, um, because we would, we would like to be in a place where we read the scriptures with such certainty that we can... Um, we can always say we know everything, even stuff that hasn't happened yet. But I, I've, I've been um, humbled too many times by, by my own changing perspectives to, to hold anything with like, too much certainty uh, other than what I've said about Jesus. And I keep clinging to that. Um, I think there is a difficult work to be done reading some of those texts, just as there is to be done reading some of the violent images in the Old Testament uh, of, of God through a cruciform uh, lens, through the, through the lens of Jesus on the cross, right? But the, it's, uh, Sarah didn't read for, or John 3.17 today, but um, it is what comes right after that most famous verse, 3.17. Uh, God didn't send Jesus in the world to condemn the world, to save it. And... Um, 
there's lots of uh, imagery, particularly in the book of Revelation, with lakes of fire and that kind of thing. But I don't, I don't think we should take our picture of the afterlife from the book of Revelation, first of all, um, because I think we have grossly misread that particular text of the Bible, especially lately, um, which I guess is a, so, uh, its own answer to a different question that I probably shouldn't try to go into right now. But It's hard. That's the answer. It's hard. Um, some of us might read the Bible through the lens of Jesus and understand God through the, through the lens of Jesus on the cross and come to the conclusion that that is actually not the nature of the afterlife. Um, it's a question about which I am still somewhat confused and don't have a very strong answer. And that's, that's, as honest, that's, the, that's the most honest I can be because anything else I say would kind of be like describing my process that's still, under, is still going on, right? Um, and that's, that's often ugly. <laughs> Nobody wants to see what's happening in my brain while I'm figuring things out, I promise you. Um, I wish I had time to give my whole sermon about uh, the gospel in chairs, which some of you have, have heard before. But the important thing from it is to recognize that, that Jesus is not our um, hazmat suit, our, our fireproof suit against the wrath of God. Uh, Jesus on the cross is not there protecting us from uh, an angry, vindictive God who wants to smite us, but rather Jesus is on the cross revealing the actual truth of who God is and that, that this self-sacrificial love in the face of all of the world's sin, individual and systematized, is what God's nature actually is. And yes, it's hard to reconcile that with lakes of fire. Um, so... Um, <clears throat> Jesus does appear in the book of Revelation, by the way, <laughs> where some of that imagery comes from. Um, and uh, he is covered in, in blood. Apparently, some people would say from a battle, but uh, he arrives at the battle already covered in that blood. And so uh, I think one way that people reconcile that is to look at the book of Revelation and say, well, you have, here I am doing my Revelation thing, sorry, uh, saying you have Jesus like all bloody from a battle, but no, it's his own blood. <laughs> that he brings to it already. And he's got a sword, but he's not swinging it with his hand. It's in his mouth. It's, it's, it's the word that is the weapon. <laughs> um, anyway, if you don't have any idea what I'm talking about right now, you're probably better off because that's a very confusing part of the Bible. But that's where some of that imagery comes from. So, Wow, Joel, thank you. Um, that's an excellent question. <laughs> uh, I have one question that I pre that I brought with me, that I know is on some people's mind, that I need a couple of minutes to answer it. But if there's an easy question... <laughs> no, I have time for one more question before I answer that one. Oh, wow, there's lots of hands. Um, why don't we go to Michael here? And that, If you want to ask, uh, ask your question and don't get a chance to, just come back to church at the 11 service. And, uh, <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm, this is about the lectionary passage, the uh, Nicodemus you know, coming to Jesus. And I, I've been kind of wondering about his... like. Um, it, did he come to Jesus sincerely, or, or was he... I don't know, what was his motivation there? And I'm kind of wondering about that. Yes, the question, I think, if I heard you right, is did Nicodemus come to Jesus sincerely to ask him that question? Um, this is from John 3, the, the passage that Sarah read at the children's uh, moment today. And 
the text doesn't really answer that for us. I don't think we, like in some places we see like a Pharisee asks Jesus a question trying to trap him, right? Yeah. And uh, you don't get that in this one exactly. And it says, I think it says he comes by night. Is that correct? Am I right there? So my sense on that, my read on that is that he's, he's coming there asking Jesus a question that he doesn't want to ask in front of anybody else. And that, that would lead me to believe that, yes, he's asking sincerely and wants to know what Jesus is about and what Jesus is teaching. Does that answer you okay? Yeah. All right. Uh, I'll uh, start you off with a softball here. Um, <laughs> how do you reconcile Uh-oh. the God of the Old <laughs> Testament with particularly um, after Exodus, the genocide, mm-hmm. and commands against interracial marriage with the person of Jesus Christ, love your neighbor, sort of stuff. Thank you for that excellent question. Um, We had a similar question in the first service, and so I've got an answer all teed up and ready to go. It's going to be... This is not an easy thing to do. It's it's, uh, nothing we can make light of. But my starting point is Jesus. And I think that that's... um, a biblical starting point. I don't like to use the Bible as an adjective if I can help it. But in the Bible, we read things such as in Hebrews 1 that Jesus is the exact representation of, Jesus, of God's very nature. Um, in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. Uh, <clears throat> in John, the Word was made flesh, the Word was with God in the beginning, and the Word was God. Speaking of Jesus uh, as God's final Word, like capital W word. The words of scripture are the word of God in one sense, but Jesus is what God has to say on the ultimate level. And so, anytime you read something in another part of the Bible that seems to conflict with what Jesus teaches, taught, and (laughs) modeled with his life and with his death, then uh, Jesus takes precedence, and you have to try to understand that through a, I I use this fancy term, like a cruciform lens, meaning based on the cross. Uh, On the cross of Jesus, God's very nature was most fully and truthfully represented to us. Everything else is not as clear. So, um, that's the first answer to the question, that we start with Jesus and we end with Jesus, and everything in between has Jesus there at the table, if you'll pardon the expression. The other part of that is, the, is we have to think about how we understand the scriptures, right? And a lot of times people say, well, the Bible says one thing over here and it says another thing over here. That's a contradiction. And that's a reasonable thing to say because there are, you know, kind of different voices that you hear from time to time. But I think it's important as always to remember what the Bible is and isn't. Um, some of you will already be able to finish this sentence for me. The Bible is not a book. It is a library. Right, it's a collection of books, and those books were written at various times by various people with their various perspectives, and yes, also various understandings of who God is and what God's nature is. Now that gets a little scary, depending on your, you know, the, the, the view of the Bible that you had from growing up or from coming into this room, for whatever church background you have, that kind of thing. It does not mean the Bible is less important or beautiful or inspira- inspired or authoritative or any of those things. What it means is that you see an evolution of understanding as you go from the the beginning of the story, closer to Jesus. Um, I mentioned this earlier, I'll say it again. I think, it's, I, think I got this from Peter Enns, but he said, uh, it's not a contradiction to say, 10 years ago, I hate oatmeal, 
And now I love oatmeal because our tastes change. Our understanding of things changes. Now, if in one conversation I said both that I hate oatmeal and I love oatmeal, that would be truly a contradiction and we would have to deal with that. But what you see in the, in the books of the Bible, I believe, in part, is an evolution of understanding of God's nature. Just as you have an evolution from kind of other ancient Near Eastern religions that practice child sacrifice, you have in the Binding of Isaac, the story in Genesis 22, a clear move away from that, saying, no, that's not how this God works, here's an animal instead. <clears throat> we might still say, well, animal sacrifice is barbaric, but we have to compare it to what came before. Uh, similarly, you see in the Bible an evolution of how people understand God. So you have the same story told in Chronicles and told in, and told in Kings. And in the earlier version, something that's attributed to God is later attributed to the devil. Right? What has happened there? People have begun to understand what God, and God does and does not do and command and act on and ask us to do. So that's a, that's a kind of vague way of saying what might be more directly said as um, sometimes I think what we read in the stories is what people thought God was saying to them and we see Jesus revealing something else about God that, that uh, takes precedence over that understanding that you saw there. It means you have to read the Bible a little more carefully and it doesn't work quite as well as a um, turnkey, like um, no thought required answer book. Um, I don't mean to be dismissive of anybody who who uses the Bible that way. I'm, I'm thinking more about how I used to think of it versus how I think of it now. So, uh, Does that answer your question at all? To, um, I know it's, it's too big a question to try to give you something that's going to satisfy you like uh, right overnight. And I still wrestle with that every day. Reading the scriptures is hard, hard work. But that's my, that's my framework. That's my methodology for how I do that kind of thing. It's a great question. Thank you. What else? Other side of the room, let's not make the pregnant lady carry the microphone. <laughs> I mean, would you pass that back to Aaron there? Uh, I have a, a, a Bible question, or pastor question, I guess. Why don't we get sermons out of minor prophets? Like, I don't know if I've ever heard you quote Nahum. Okay. <laughs> Why don't we get sermons out of minor prophets? Well, because they're minor. No, just Jonah doesn't count. What's that? Jonah doesn't count. Jonah doesn't count? Well, he does. He's one of the minor prophets. Um, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, part one is I will take that to heart, and I'll endeavor to preach more widely. I'm always trying to preach more widely. Uh, one of the reasons we're using the lectionary right now is to, pre is to prevent me from picking my favorite stuff all the time or just what I think you might want to hear or need to hear or what I would be happy preaching about. But the truth is the way we use the lectionary does not insist on me preaching on each of those texts, texts each week or even because, we've been, because I've been a little bit um, derelict in my duty, we don't even read all of them each week. I wish we did, but I haven't gotten us to the point where the liturgy works that way yet and where there's enough people and volunteers and stuff to keep that going. So, the lectionary is supposed to point us to texts that we would otherwise miss, and I, even though we use the lectionary, I can still bob and weave a little bit and, and dodge that. For what it's worth, the lectionary itself bobs and weaves and dodges some of the harder stuff. Um, we don't get every word of the Bible from the lectionary, even over the full three-year cycle. But... So that's part of the answer. Another part of the answer is, um, 
you know, in my discernment of what, which texts to focus on and preach on, I haven't seen those ones coming up as the ones that seem like the congregation needs to hear taught and preached. Um, the, the whole library of the Bible is, is authoritative, inspired, beneficial for training and all those things, right? We, we don't want to bury any part of it. But certain parts of it tell us uh, the higher points of the story in ways that others don't. And so it may be that there's been some focus on some of those higher points. I don't know. I'm floundering a little bit with this question. I, th- I appreciate you asking it. Um, let's see. I feel like there's something else I want to say about that, but it's not really formulating very well in my mind right now. But thank you for asking that question. Well, let's move on, because I, I want to make sure we get other questions. Uh, yeah, Dale, would somebody hand the mic over to Dale, please? Hey, Scott. Hi. Um, I was wondering, do you believe that Christians are called to embrace nonviolence? Uh, I can answer that question in what way, with maybe? the word yes. <laughs> um, yes, I think in an absolute way, actually, truth be told. Uh, and this is, this is a, I, I talk about this quite a lot, but in a fairly subtle way, which maybe is what's behind the question. Since I believe, as I said a moment ago, that, that Jesus is the best representation, that Jesus on the cross is the best representation of God's nature and will, um, and Jesus is very clearly taught nonviolence and practiced it, um, I, I believe that that's the, that's the calling and mandate for all people who would walk in the way of Jesus, all who would follow Jesus, all who would call themselves little Christs, you know, Christians. And the early church believed this too for about 314 years. Well, I did, I did the math wrong there, but um, the early church refused to commit any act of violence. The early Christians would not do it. They went into the Colosseum for sport and and made no, you know, they, they were sacrificed for the entertainment of the Roman people. Uh, and you can read their memoirs as they're kind of like waiting to go into the, into the arena. It's quite powerful. And the, the religion spread like wildfire, even as the, the Romans tried to stamp it out with violence and with executions and that kind of thing. It wasn't until the, the emperor of Rome converted to Christianity and made it the state religion that you begin to see Christians doing things like entering military service and going to war on behalf of the nation and uh, performing acts of violence in the name of Rome, which on paper was also the name of Christ. That's just the facts. So um, I know this is a very complicated issue when we try to think about it in the 21st century, mm-hmm. you know, and I... Um, <clears throat> You know, I'm probably not going to win any popularity contests by, by extrapolating that too far. And, and I don't um, condemn people who make different choices than I do. Um, but it's my belief that, that Christians should never commit violence for any reason. So um, I, I want to be very clear about the last part of what I said, which is that I don't exclude people from my ministry if they have a different view. I don't cast 
aspersions at people who have a different view. Um, I know that there's lots of arguments to be made about just war versus true pacifism and all those things. Uh, the, the church has wrestled with that in many different ways since the Roman Empire fell. Um, and I know you're not specifically asking about military service, at least I don't think you are. Um, it's, that's where it becomes less clear. I think it's more clear when, it, when it's more personal um, violence. But All right, I'm, I'm rambling now. I'm so sorry. I, I'm not doing a good job. <laughs> uh, let's go to Marielle and then Doug. And I think that probably has to be our last two. I'm so sorry to say because I have one of the questions that I know a lot of people are asking uh, outside of Sundays that I want to answer on this Sunday. So I want to leave time for that. But go ahead, Marielle. So I didn't want to ask this question because I thought it would be too complicated to answer, but this has really set the stage, so maybe this will be easy to answer. Um, what would be your analysis of why none of the disciples were female? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Why were none of the disciples female? Okay. Sorry. Uh, the apostles, yeah. Apostles. Uh, except Junia, who <laughs> um, wasn't one of the 12, but was an apostle. By the way, any of these questions I'm giving insufficient answers to, if you want to like, talk to me more about them, please understand that I know they're more complicated than I'm able to answer, and I'm more than willing to, to discuss them more with you at another time if you want to. So my short answer to that is because it would not have worked culturally uh, for that to be the case, and God is always making accommodations to our culture, and uh, at the same time trying to stretch us a little bit, Right? And so the stretching happened, in, I think, with regards to women's roles in society, with how Jesus talked to and interacted with women, with the fact that women were uh, the first evangelists and witnesses to the resurrection and who the, were the first to preach the gospel, with the fact that women were intimately involved in the construction and function of the early church, and including financing it in some cities, uh, but that at the time, in a Jewish culture, a rabbi and his disciples, his closest disciples, were, were men. And that was kind of the, the rule of the day. And upsetting that to a, you know, in a, in a complete and total way probably would have made it impossible for, uh, you know, understanding with God all things are possible. But, it, like, it would have made it, you know, functionally impossible to try to uh, draw humanity closer to what God's true design for the world is, which I believe in, includes women involved at all levels of, of Christian ministry. So that's a, not, that's a frustrating answer, but it's, uh, it's the best short one I can give right now. <laughs> um, and then is the mic headed this way yet? Uh, right this way, Mario to Doug over here. <clears throat> I love this, by the way. I could do this every week, but I know that's not what you want. So. <laughs> maybe we start with a softball, maybe we'll end with a hardball. Uh, it um, wasn't a softball, <laughs> if you remember. <laughs> that was ironic. <laughs> His words, not mine. Um, how would you make the connection between the current nation state of Israel, or relation between the current nation state of Israel and the Israel of the Bible? Because I come from a faith background that encourages almost a blind support of the mm-hmm. nation-state of Israel. Mm-hmm. And how do we wrestle with that? <laughs> yeah, the easy answer is don't, but... Yeah, right. Um, the, the conversations are much more complex than that, I think. Certainly, yes, yes. And when you, 
when you have a very large voting bloc in the U.S. that, that thinks of uh, modern-day Israel as equivalent to ancient Israel um, in the big picture of the God's grand narrative for the universe, then that, that becomes uh, something that we have to discuss and think about. So I've tipped my hand already a little bit, I think, with the way I describe that, which is that I don't think that you can make those two things equal to each other. Um, and that I believe that, that uh, the Christ's work brought to its fruition and completion means that every tribe and tongue and nation has access to God um, and that we are all uh, heirs to the promise, right? One of the lectionary texts today, I don't, I don't have time to read it, but I think it's from Romans, it uh, might be 8, um, talks about we're, we're heirs, we're, we're adopted into this family, right? And so the, the specialness of that is not what it was, or at least not in the same way, right? I think, Doug, if I go any further on this, it's going to open up a very longer, much longer answer, which frankly I'm not educated well enough to, to give. So that's my, that's my brief thumbnail sketch of what it is, and I hope that that is not overly frustrating. <laughs> I'm going to invite you to take communion now. The band's going to come back up and lead us in uh, a song. And uh, I'll remind you that this is the table not of the church but of the Lord. And that all who are following Jesus and seeking to make the Christ way their way are invited to come and partake of this sacrament. May it be for you the real presence of the Savior, the body and blood, a reminder of his sacrifice and an act of unity with each other. And if you'd like to receive personal prayer, the prayer team will be available for you in the back of the room. So let's continue to worship God at the table and in song. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.